Hello! Welcome to the Healthy Habits Happy Home Podcast, hosted by the Guelph Family Health Study. If you're interested in the most recent research and helpful tips for healthy, balanced living for you and your family, then this podcast is for you. In each episode, we will bring you topics that are important to your growing family and guests who will share their expertise and experience with you. Our quick tips will help your family build healthy habits for a happy home. Welcome back to the Healthy Habits Happy Homes podcast. I'm Marcy Ann. And I'm Tamara. And today we're excited to have Dr. Katherine Walton join us. Dr. Walton is a registered dietitian and an assistant professor in the Department of Family Relations and Applied Nutrition here at the University of Guelph. Today, she is here to talk to us about tackling feeding challenges. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here today. (laughs) Awesome. Yes. And now Dr. Walton might be a familiar voice to some of our listeners. She was the host of season one of the podcast, and you've been a podcast guest throughout the year. So we're very um, happy to welcome you back to the podcast again. Oh, thanks so much. It's such a pleasure to be back. So to get us started, can you just tell us a bit about yourself and your role and experience with the Guelph Family Health Study? Sure. So I think you gave a great overview. I'm a registered dietitian, and my expertise is really in helping parents and caregivers raise healthy, happy eaters. Um, And so all of my research and clinical expertise has focused around that. Um, And as you said, I trained with the Guelph Family Health Study. Um, So I was a graduate student and I had various roles within the amazing um, study that is the GFHS, um, including um, I worked as the facilitator of the Family Council for a few years and got to work with that incredible group of parents. Um, So it's really nice to be back working with both of you. Oh, wow. It's really great to have you on, Dr. Walton. To give us some background for our podcast today, can you explain what feeding challenges are? Sure. And so before we get into feeding challenges, I think it's important to start our conversation recognizing that eating is a neurodevelopmental process. And what I mean by that is when we eat, we're not only um, putting food in our mouths and chewing it, but we're also taking in the sensory processes of those foods um, and of the environment around us. And so children need to learn to eat and parents need to learn to feed. And so I just want to set the stage that everybody's learning when it comes to young children's eating and feeding behaviors. And so when you ask uh, both the literature and parents or caregivers, picky eating or feeding challenges are really common. And so depending on where you look, we'll see that between 14 and 50% of parents identify their young preschooler children as picky eaters. And so that's a lot of young children. And when I work with parents, it's the primary concern that brings families in to see me is that picky eating. So if you're feeling like your child is a picky eater, you're not alone. And the language I'll hear from parents is things like, my child is so picky, they barely eat anything, and they refuse to try new foods. So if that's you, again, you're not alone. If we look to what the research says, the research will define picky or fussy eaters as those who are unwilling to eat familiar foods or try new foods, and it's severe enough to interfere with daily routines to an extent that it's problematic to the parent, the child, or the parent-child relationship. 
And so that's what we, we think about when we're talking about picky or fussy eating. Okay, that's really helpful. I didn't know that the pre- like the prevalence was that high. It is. Yeah. yeah. And so is there a difference between a picky eater and a problem eater? Yeah, that's a really good question. And there is. And so when I talk about picky eating, for the most part, picky eating is actually fairly normal and developmentally appropriate. And so as, as I started our podcast, I talked about how children need to learn to eat. Well, picky eating tends to sort of manifest when children are developing autonomy. And so it's developmentally appropriate for a child to say, you know, no, I don't want to eat that or no, that doesn't taste good to me. And so some of that is normal. And so when we think about picky eaters, picky eaters may have a decreased range or a limited variety of foods. But the key thing is they do have at least 30 or more foods in their entire repertoire. Okay, so we may see a limited amount, but they are still eating a significant number of different types of foods. And they may go through phases where they have food jags, meaning there's periods of time where they stop eating a certain food. But within a few weeks, that usually resolves. And picky eaters do still eat foods from most texture groups. So they'll eat purees, they'll eat at least a protein food, a fruit, or a meltable food like cheese or something that melts in your um, melts on your tongue when you put it into your mouth. And they typically do tolerate new foods on their plate. They may touch the foods, but they may not eat those foods. And sometimes these picky eaters will eat different foods from the rest of their family members or whoever they're sitting down to eat with. And for picky eaters, the ability to learn new foods takes time, um, but it's definitely possible. Okay, so that's a picky eater. But let's shift to what is more problematic and where we might be more concerned about a young child's eating. And so with problem eaters, there's a a definite restriction in the range and variety of foods. And so for these kiddos, we're seeing typically less than 20 unique different foods. Food jags, so that period of time where children will refuse to eat certain foods, often don't resolve and then can result in a fewer number of total foods that the child will tolerate. They may refuse entire categories or textures of foods or nutrition groups. And when new foods are presented, it's usually there's more crying, screaming, or tantrums. So it's more stressful for these young young kids. And these children almost always eat a different set of foods and may eat at a different time than other family members. These children, they can also learn to eat new foods, but it is much harder and it does take many more steps. And so that's how we differentiate between those, what's more developmentally appropriate and what is considered more problem eating. So I hope that's helpful in thinking through where your child might be if you're, if you're feeling like you, you're having some of these challenges. No, that, that was very clear and even like helpful f- for, for me because I didn't even think of the fact that uh, around that age, like toddlers are, are developing autonomy. So that could be a reason while they're like, no, like, <laughs> you know, even as an adult, it's pretty nice to say no. Um, and so- <laughs> exactly. And, and you know, it, it, we do want our children to have those preferences, right? And I always remind people, it is actually 
100% okay if your kid doesn't like broccoli. Like, that's okay. I'm a registered dietitian, and I don't love kale. (laughs) It's just not for me. The texture is just a little bit too chewy. And that's actually okay. You can still have a really healthful diet and just not prefer some of those foods. That's so true. Yeah, it's not all or nothing. (laughs) No, exactly. So how do you identify the differences as a parent and how do you navigate each of these uh, differences? Yeah, for sure. Um, and as a parent, when you're sitting and eating with your child and they're not eating something, it's it's stressful, right? And so having those sort of numbers in your back pocket. So thinking about the pure number of foods that your child will or won't eat is, I think, a helpful start, right? So if we've got 30 or more foods, maybe your child's a picky eater and there's some a few things we can do to help support while they learn to eat. If your child is a problem eater and we're seeing less than 20 different foods in their total repertoire and meal terms are really stressful with lots of tantrums, that's a, that's a different story. And so in both cases, I want to acknowledge that it's tough. Feeding is parenting, and there's a lot of love wrapped up into that. And so no matter where you are on the spectrum with your child and the challenges you're experiencing, it's tough. And I don't want to undermine that. So seek support. No matter where your challenges are, if you're feeling like you're just not sure what the next step is, uh, seek support. And so that could look a, a few different ways. So for a picky eater or a problem eater, I always suggest chatting with your family doctor or a pediatrician for a referral to a registered dietitian. And that dietitian can help tease out, you know, whether this is really problematic or whether it's picky eating and how to support on either way. And just to ensure that your child is getting all of the nutrients they need to help support their healthy growth. So definitely seek health professional um, support. But there are some other things that you can do at home that may be quite helpful. And so I think it's important to think about the steps of eating. Eating is sort of our our outcome, right? And so there's lots of things that lead up into actually putting a food in your mouth and swallowing it. With our children who are more hesitant or resistant eaters, whether problematic or picky, let's start with tolerating the food. So a new food. So what I mean by tolerating is maybe the new food is in the same room as the child. And then next it's on the table with the child and then maybe on their plate. Okay, so let's just focus on tolerating new foods first, depending on where your child's at. Once your child can tolerate that new food or food group, let's start interacting with it. So that may first simply be passing a dish of that food to another family member. It may then look at like moving that food around their plate with a fork, those types of things. Once we can interact with a food, Maybe we'll start smelling the food. And again, we can start with smelling the food in the room, right, while it's cooking. For some young kids, and frankly, for some adults, like certain foods have really strong smells that can be quite off-putting. And so let's start with the smell in the room, and then maybe we can bring the food to our nose and just give it a little sniff. From smelling, then there's touching. So we can touch the food with our hands, we can touch it with our lips, and then touching goes to tasting. So for tasting, we might lick it, we might chew a little bit, doesn't mean we swallow it, but we might move it around in our mouth, and maybe we'll swallow a small bite. And then finally, we're eating. 
And so if you think through those steps, we can help our kids at each one of those stages interact with different foods slowly. Giving them autonomy and going at their pace can be quite helpful. The big thing I also want to highlight is continue to offer a variety of foods. I totally get it. When a child refuses a food, we don't want to waste food, right? We're like, okay, well, I'm not going to cook it if it's just going to go to waste. And then I also, you know, maybe I feel like I then have to finish what is left on the plate so it doesn't go into the garbage. And that's maybe not so appetizing after it's been moved around and played with on the plate, right? And so I totally get that, but small amounts, right? So when we're talking about interacting and having it on the plate, maybe it's, let's go back to the broccoli example. Maybe it's one floor of broccoli. And this is where frozen food can really become your friend. Um, You can get those pre-chopped frozen uh, foods, particularly with vegetables or fruits, and just put one or two pieces on the plate. And so that way you don't have to buy a whole head of broccoli and fear that it's going to be wasted. But continue to offer variety. When we play into our children's preferred foods, their repertoire can get smaller and smaller. And so even if it's just you know, offering it's on the table, your child may or may not eat it, continue to offer that variety. Yeah, for sure. I think it's important too to just, just as you're doing, like acknowledge how stressful and frustrating that this can be for so many parents, mm-hmm. you know, as you've shared these practical tips to navigate picky eating and problem eating and using these steps to eating as well, it kind of breaks it down into maybe more like manageable or digestible pieces. Um, and even like the tip for frozen vegetables or frozen fruits, that's such a great idea to reduce waste. Because like you said, yeah, like who wants to buy a whole head of broccoli if it might not be eaten? Yeah, exactly. And I think the other thing um, that you sort of reminded me of Tamara is feeding is a long game. And so with our little kids who are you know, resistant eaters, I want to encourage you not to worry so much about the individual meal or the individual day. And so with little kids, we, you know, on an individual day, they've got smaller tummies and what they eat, you know, it's very normal for it to the amount to vary um, from meal to meal or day to day, depending on their energy levels, uh, whether they've been out running at the park like crazy or, you know, it's a rainy day and they've been indoors or frankly, just their mood. Just like adults, you know, some kids eat more when they're upset, some eat less. And so that varies and that's absolutely normal. And so what I encourage you to think about is what your child ate over the span of a week. So did they eat a variety of different textures and a variety of different foods from different food groups over the week um, versus one individual meal or one individual day? I think that can also help. Right. So instead of kind of like looking at the individual pieces, more of like an average throughout a period of time. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. And so given all of these, you know, picky eating, problem eating, like how do feeding behaviors as a whole affect a child's health overall, like including their relationship with food? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. And so what we do see in children who are you know, seen as their parents as picky eaters, we do see less dietary variety and fewer foods eaten than children who are not considered to be picky eaters. Parents say, you know, they seem to not be eating a variety or as many foods as I'd expect. And we we do tend to see that with those children that are categorized as picky eaters. Some research suggests that there's potentially some inadequate intake of certain nutrients, particularly folate, fibers, calcium, and magnesium in children who are considered picky eaters. 
But um, the re- there is limited research in that area. And the impact on children's growth and their relation, their overall relationship with food um, and other health outcomes is unclear. And so we don't have a ton of research to really say that picky eating impacts these other outcomes. It might, particularly if picky eating continues. And so if children aren't receiving and families um, receiving support to help navigate this, um, we may see more of those impacts on growth if it persists over time. But certainly there is that increased stress for meal times and snack times on the parent and the parent-child relationship. And so that and that in itself, I think, warrants seeking support. If you're feeling like feeding your child is really hard and you're sort of, I don't want to say dread, but meal times are really not some it's something you enjoy, get support. There's no, you know, don't struggle through this. If we think about a young kid, you know, depending on your family schedule, you may feed your kid, you know, six, seven times during the day. And if every time you go to do that, it's feeling really stressful. That's a lot of stressful interactions. I, I want to validate that it's hard, but encourage you to to reach out. Yeah, for sure. You can't underscore the importance of support like that. Mm -hmm. definitely need to go and seek. I feel like what you brought up too about how I was actually shocked that there are some unclear outcomes when it comes to relationship with food. And maybe there's just not a lot of research being done in this area. Or that's true. I think in terms of the research, it's um, the amount of research, but just also in how we've done the research. And so what I mean by that is a lot of the research in children's eating, particular with picky eating, is cross-sectional in design, meaning it's at one point in time. So we don't have a lot of evidence that follows children over time to see how that relationship with food develops or changes based on picky eating. At one point in time, we really can't say where the chicken or the egg is. So we're limited by that. That makes sense. At what age can these feeding difficulties manifest and do they persist into adulthood? Mm, Another great question. So picky eating typically starts to manifest between the ages of two and four years. So right in that preschool time. And so what you'll often, what I often hear is parents will be like, you know, my baby was such a good eater. When they started solids, they would try anything. And then all of a sudden, you know, two hit and it was like they wanted nothing to do with all of their favorite foods. And so it's so, it's so common that I hear that. And there's a few reasons for that. And I've said before uh, in our conversation that picky eating is developmentally appropriate in some ways. And so some of those behaviors, and that's because, as we said, children start to develop autonomy. There's such power in the word no. (laughs) You know, some two-year-olds, that seems to be the only word they say, you know, will you put on your boots? No. (laughs) Will you zip up your coat? Absolutely not. Right? Like everything's no, because they've learned that they have some autonomy and they're developing choice and how they feel about things in their world. And so that is normal. The other thing that makes picky eating quote unquote developmentally normal is that children's growth starts to slow between the ages of two to four relative to infancy. So they're not growing at the same rapid rate as they were earlier. And so their appetites naturally decline to meet their, you know, slower growth rate. Uh, And I say slower relative to infancy. They still are growing at a much rapid rate than adults, but it's slower than when they were babies. 
And so that's why picky eating starts to, to manifest during that age. The other thing is that, which I find really fascinating, is some of these behaviors, particularly refusal of new foods, is historically appropriate. And so if we think back to the cave people ages, when little ones were running around the woods, it was protective for children not to put anything they saw in their mouths um, and to be hesitant of new food so that they weren't poisoned. And so some of that may, you know, have evolutionarily stuck with us. Just, you know, when children are out of sight, out of their caregiver's sight, it is helpful if they're not necessarily putting everything. I mean, they do tend to put a lot of toys and things in their mouths, but food-wise, it might be protective. With supports and develop, helping children develop autonomy, uh, most of these behaviors can help, will diminish as children age and are exposed to different um, foods and positive mealtime environments, and they will develop healthy eating habits over time. That's actually really interesting about the evolutionary perspective. I've never even thought of that, but there is certainly yeah. like an element of danger there. That's yeah. That might've stuck with us throughout the years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I find it fascinating. Yeah, it is. It's really interesting. Yeah. And I mean, basically it, it seems like if this is so- something like as a parent you're struggling with right now, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be forever. Yeah, exactly. It may just be the season you're in and sort of riding it. And I think um, later on, we're going to chat about some specific tips for, for parents and caregivers. Uh, no, you're not not alone yeah. in that some of this is just, it's just raising little ones. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. For sure. So what are some of the specific barriers that parents face when their child is a resistant eater? And how how can they best navigate them? Yeah, for sure. And so I think, again, it's knowing that some of this is just developmental and just riding the tide that is feeding a little one. Often what I hear is concerns about that, you know, that children aren't getting enough nutrients or they won't grow. And just as we were talking about with the literature, in terms of growth, there's mixed evidence on growth. And there's some nutrients that may that children may not get enough of. But overall, it does look like that, at least with picky eaters, not necessarily problematic eaters, but with picky eaters, over time, they will do okay. And just to know that not to worry too much. But in terms of navigating um, some of this, it's really important to think about how we can support children's autonomy during eating. And so what I want to encourage parents is to think less about what your child's eating, because of course we get on the internet, uh, we're chatting with our friends, you know, my kid eats all these foods. You might be hearing, you know, language about that, or, you know, kids have to eat all these foods. You're seeing articles on the internet and it can be hard to not get wrapped up in that. But What I want to encourage you to think more about is how your child's eating versus what they're eating. And so we want to try and create a positive environment during mealtimes and focus less on pressure. It can be really hard not to be like, you have to eat two more, 10 more bites of this, whatever food it is, but focusing less on that and more about sitting down and enjoying the time together can be really helpful in making it a calm environment for children to try new foods. 
Yeah, I, I love what you said about riding the tide that is feeding. That's such a that's such a good way to put it. And I think, um, like you mentioned too, like the literature in terms of like growth and nutrients, it's a little bit, it's not necessarily clear that there will be these effects. So hopefully, I, I really hope that that makes some parents with that might have picky eaters feel a little bit better. Um, maybe take some mm-hmm. of that pressure off, which will hopefully help use the tips that you've shared to navigate these challenges, you know, to reduce the pressure overall, and just to work on creating a more positive and kind of relaxed environment around feeding. Yeah, as long as we're offering a variety of different foods and textures and focusing just on sitting down together, wherever that may be, um, and spending time together, that goes a long way. Yeah, I think it brought back a memory. I'll try to make it not as sad, but like just in relation to like children's autonomy and really like encouraging that and giving space for that. I remember there was a time where I was at daycare. I was probably like three or four where I wasn't eating that much, kind of had a low appetite and I was very like, I couldn't sit still as a kid. And so my father told the daycare workers to make sure that I ate everything on my plate because he was concerned about like my eating. And so Mm -hmm. there were one time in particular, I remember that like Everyone left the cafeteria, like they took all my friends back to class to go to nap time. And I was stuck in the cafeteria and like they wouldn't let me leave until I finished my food. And they even like turned all the lights off at one point to kind of like show that I'm taking too much time and like I need to hurry up. And so it was really sad. And I remember, you know, I I really couldn't finish. They eventually like after nap time, I like missed nap time, they threw it out. But it was encouraging that when I did go home and I told my dad, he was like, what? Like, that's not what I meant. Like, (laughs) you can say no, I just want you to like, at least try to eat like I was just, you know, scared because you weren't eating too much. And so that was just helpful that like, he he did have my back. And he was like, don't do that to my child again. (laughs) So... Yeah, for sure. And I that's such a great example, Mercy. And thank you for sharing that. And I think there's a few things I want to just like highlight from that is one, your your father's love for you, right? And the concern to make sure that you're eating, right? Like that came from such a place of love for you. And so I just want to acknowledge that. And I think many parents listening that will resonate with. And a few other things. One, I think it's really important to note in terms of kids sitting down and eating, wherever that is, children's attention spans are small, right? There's so many things that can take their attention and in some cases are much more exciting than sitting down and eating. Um, For many children, particularly in a daycare setting where there's friends and cool new toys, in my research, I've watched over 200 families eat meals together. And consistently what we see is that mealtimes, and this is dinner times I'm talking about, but I think in terms of um, childcare settings, this this can um, apply to mealtimes are actually much shorter than you might think. And so we really, for a preschool age child, we really can only expect them to sit for between 15 to 20 minutes maximum. Keeping a child there longer does not, it's it, particularly in the example you've, you've shared, right? Doesn't equate to eating more food. And it can just, again, perpetuate the challenge, right? You aren't feeling happy in that situation. All of your friends have gone to nap time. You're probably tired because mm-hmm. it's also supposed to be your nap time, right? And so that that's unfortunately not a positive experience for you, right? Because you're tired, your friends aren't there. It's not going to get you to eat more food. Yeah. You know, my colleagues and I, what we're interested in also is helping support feeding in other 
realms, right? There's lots of other people that help um, feed our children, care centers, etc., grandparents. And so a lot of my research is around supporting parents, but there are so many other caregivers in a child's life that um, we also need to support in terms of how to create positive and happy, healthy eaters. So true. So true. That's that's helpful. And parents are superheroes. I feel like just listening to everything you're saying, I just it gives me even more empathy for parents because it, it really is a lot. It's no easy gig. No. Kids don't come with a manual. No, not at all. With that, like what are the parents versus the children's responsibility when it does come to feeding? Yeah, that's such a great segue. So when it comes to feeding, I like to think of the division of responsibility. And so Ellen Sater first coined this. And so we, in the division of responsibility, parents have certain tasks and children have certain tasks. So as a parent, you are responsible in feeding for what your child eats or, you know, what you serve, not what they eat, but what types of foods you serve, where you serve them. And so that could be, you know, sitting at your table, you could be having a picnic on the floor or outside somewhere. And you're also responsible for when, so that mealtime schedule, when meals and snacks are served. So that's your responsibility, the foods that are served, where they're eaten, and when they're eaten. Children are responsible for how much they eat of the foods that you offer and whether they eat at all. And kids are really good at guiding their own appetites. So as much as we can really lean into that division responsibility and give children autonomy over what and how much or whether they eat is so powerful. Even young infants eat in response to their hunger and satiety cues. So whether they're hungry or whether they're full. And as much as possible as caregivers, we want to allow children to listen to those cues in their bodies. Many of us as adults we've lost, you know, due to many things, the food environment that um, we we often are in, um, you know, our own relationships with food over time, many of us have lost that ability to tap into our bodies to listen to those hunger and satiety cues. And it can be really hard as adults. But kids are born with that ability to naturally listen to those hunger and satiety cues. So as much as possible, allowing them and supporting them in listening to those cues can be really helpful. And asking children, you know, whether their tummy feels like it has more room in it. And if you ask, respecting the answer. And you may not feel that, that, you know, they may say, tummy's full. And you're like, oh my gosh, you've eaten like one bite of what's on the table. But They've told you it's full. Respect that. And always put, you know, some a cover over the plate and at the next eating opportunity, offer those foods again. Yeah. What a great overview of the division of responsibility. It, it really sounds like it takes like a lot of respect, as you said, but also a lot of trust. Because like you said, like allowing, you know, your child and trusting that your child has those hunger fullness cues, which, you know, we're all born with. But like you mentioned, all those different factors as an adult influence our own hunger fullness cues. And because we lose some of those things, it can be hard to put the trust on a child to, to be like, yeah, are you full? Are you not full? And like actually yeah. trust their answer. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that trust can take time. So if you're feeling like you don't have that trust now, start small, try, you know, you can try and build that back and, and practice and, you know, 
just because you don't get it right today doesn't, you know, tomorrow's a new day. And it's also acknowledging, you know, that access to food too, right? Having a safe and, um, you know, always available access to foods that you want to eat, it also plays into this. So I want to acknowledge that um, that can really make feeding difficult. Yeah, for sure. if, If you don't have that. Definitely. And we've talked about how creating, you know, a positive environment around feeding and and at mealtimes and stuff can help navigate some of the barriers that parents face with like picky picky eaters. So what are some strategies that parents can use to make mealtimes more enjoyable? Yeah, for sure. And this works, these things work no matter where your child is at on the spectrum um, in terms of, uh, you know, problematic eating to picky eating to some, you know, small food refusal, but there's a few, there's lots of things that we we can do. And so the first one I want to talk about is supporting children as they learn to eat. And so what I mean by that is providing opportunities for children to develop their oral motor feeding skills. And so that's the chewing and the swallowing, the motor skills that are using utensils, those types of things. And so Allow your child to self-feed and practice using utensils. If they don't get utensils right, that's okay. Picking foods up with their hands is also totally fine. They'll get the utensils over time. Um, it helps them develop fine motor skills as well. So there's reasons outside of eating to, to practice with utensils. Have your ch- child drink from an open cup as early as six months onwards. It helps with those chewing and swallowing um, skills and taking, being able to move the mouth in different ways to take food in. That also helps with language development. So again, outside of feeding, being able to purse the lips around a cup and take liquid in is also the same muscles that we use to learn to speak. So it's also important in that way and offering a variety of textures. So children know what a variety of textures feel like in their mouth and can practice chewing and swallowing different textures. We also want to make sure children are seated properly so that they're comfortable during mealtimes. So often we have kids that just seem like they cannot sit still during mealtimes and it could be that they're just really uncomfortable. And so I want you to go home and look at where you're, you're feeding and where your family eats meals and snacks. And so we want to ensure that children are seated such that their their torso and their upper body have enough support to use a utensil or use their hands to bring food to their mouths and so that they're well supported. And so what that looks like is the child seated with their feet on the ground or a footrest. So if your child's in a high chair, that could look like a little bar such that their feet are supported by a little a little ledge. We don't want them, if you look at the traditional high chairs, a lot of them are super reclined and that's not really supportive um, for children to take food and then to properly chew and swallow it. And so we want the child seated, you know, back straight, feet on the ground. If your table's a little bit higher, putting a footstool, one you might have at the sink under their feet so that they're well supported, can go a long way. And we've talked about this before, offering a variety of foods, even in times when your kid seems more resistant to trying um, those new foods. So that's in terms of developing those chewing and swallowing skills. So that's one thing. The next thing I want to talk about is creating a positive environment. And so, you know, if the table or wherever you're eating isn't feeling positive, switch it up. Maybe you start having a picnic on the floor because maybe your table's too high and you can't have a... Um, a footstool for your child, a picnic is also a great option. Or maybe you can move a small craft chair to the coffee table in your living room. And that's a more supportive and maybe more fun, fun environment. 
we want to try and give our child choice whenever possible, because right, this is the time that they're developing autonomy. So choice could look like choosing the vegetable that goes on the plate that night. And so don't give your child tons of choice, you know, give them choice between two options that you're comfortable with. So do you want carrots or do you want tomatoes for dinner tonight? For example, you can also give them choice in terms of which chair they sit at or what color plate and cup they choose. What placemat, if you have placemats, what placemat they want for dinner tonight. The more choice uh, you give your child, the more in control of that interaction they feel. And that's great for that age group. It's also great to limit screens during mealtimes to truly engage together, talk about your days, and also allow children to focus on um, the sensory inputs of the food versus looking at the screen and being distracted. That way it allows children to listen to those hunger and fullness cues better when they're focused on the food. Again, I I want to remind you that uh, feeding is a long game. So uh, worry less about what and how much they're eating. Remember, that's the child's job. And think more about the food memories that you want to create and the overall relationship with food that you're hoping to model for your child. And then the other, a few other things, um, have a consistent meal and snack time. Um, such that your child knows when that next eating opportunity is. So if they they choose not to eat a ton at one meal, that's okay. You can remind them, okay, the next time that we're going to eat is, is snack time in a few hours. And so having that regular meal and snack time can, again, help children listen to those hunger and satiety cues. But it also makes sure that they come to the meal or snack time hungry and ready to eat. If we ha- don't have a ton of structure and children are, are just eating when whenever they say they're hungry, because let me tell you, children will always say they're hungry and there's no more hungry time than bedtime. Um, <laughs> so having that consistent schedule means that they, they are ready for that next eating occasion. And then we can encourage our children without pressure, right? So we can encourage them by saying, mm, doesn't this food smell good or... Oh, those carrots look so tasty, right? We're commenting positively about the food without actually pressuring them or saying they have to eat any any of it. And then modeling food intake. So, you know, if you want your child to eat a certain vegetable or eat vegetables in general, modeling yourself eating them. So they need to see, children need to see their caregivers eating foods, again, to know that they're safe to eat, but also to know that, you know, they're tasty and they can be enjoyed. And then the other thing to think of is how do we make our foods really taste good, right? Food is about enjoyment. And so enjoy that. If you're having broccoli, can you put a cheese sauce on top of it? If cheese is a favorite food for your child, pairing a favorite food with a more novel food can go a long way. Um, There's no reason that our vegetables have to just be boiled. And that's how I grew up a lot of the time was just boiled vegetables and, you know, not not so great. And so can we, you know, use flavors to make the the vegetables taste as best they can and and pair those favorite foods. Um, It also helps get more nutrients in, right? Cheese is a great source of calcium. Um, And so if we think about our picky eaters, maybe not having enough calcium added on top of the veggies as a sauce. And there you go, you're adding another nutrient in while pairing a favorite food. So those are just some ideas of things that you can do during mealtimes. 
outside of mealtimes, I always like to encourage involving children in food activities where there is no pressure to eat. So can you, you know, age appropriately? Can you have your child wash the fruits and veggies under the water? Can you, when you're at the grocery store, take a look at different foods? You don't necessarily have to buy them, but even just pointing out foods that look cool, look at the colors of the different foods, cut foods open and look at the sensory aspects of those foods and how amazing nature is. You know, do if you have access to some, you know, some pots, can you grow some veggies or some fruits in your windowsill or on a balcony, or if you have a backyard in your backyard, and and talk about where food comes from? Again, all getting your child interested in food without the pressure of having to eat it, because we talked about before the stages that end up in eating, and that engagement with food is is really important. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing such creative ideas. I feel like I'm definitely going to store those away if needed for in the future. They're just so like kind of out of the box, some of them like the picnic idea, you know, having a choice between a few uh, different veggies, pairing accepted foods which with ones that might be new and not yet accepted. So there was just so many useful tips there that you provided around mealtimes and also outside of mealtimes too, like, you know, growing food and going to the grocery store and just kind of talking about different foods. So That was um, a really helpful overview, I feel, for our listeners. There was just one thing that you had mentioned earlier when we were talking about kind of the developmental aspects in chewing and swallowing. Mm -hmm. And I was just um, curious with like the allowing to self-feed and with the different textures and stuff. I feel like sometimes parents feel really nervous about choking. Can you just comment on, on this a little bit? Yeah, for sure. And it's yeah, it's very common that I hear and it, it can be very uncomfortable to see um, your child gagging on foods, but that is a learned process. And so choking or gag, not choking, fully choking, but gagging is is a safety mechanism. And so as children learn to chew new foods, um, gagging is the body telling the, the child that that's too big of a piece. That's too big, chew it more, and then swallow it. And so it's a safety mechanism to help children not fully choke. And so coughing and gagging are very appropriate. But when you're feeding your child, that's why it's important to make sure that they're seated properly. So in an upright position with feet supported so that their body is supported. And when your child's first introduced to solids, that they can sit up independently of you or something supporting them, that goes a long way. Okay, so we do want to make sure they're safe and seated when they're eating and not running around. And we also want you or another adult watching the child when they're eating. Okay, to to make sure that um, those that gagging and choking or that gagging and coughing is okay. And so we know that gagging and coughing is okay because the child is still getting air into their airways when they're gagging and coughing. So that piece will just come up and that's okay. When we are concerned is when your child is no longer coughing or gagging. And so when they're ga- like they're gasping, but there's no air, that's when the child is fully choking. And that's when you would need to do back blows, depending on the size of the, in, uh, the infant, to remove that um, piece from them. So I always suggest that parents do do a first aid course. You know, you want to have though that confidence if something were to happen, um, you know, in the rare instance that you can act in the moment, but just know that gagging is totally appropriate 
but do take, do take, I always encourage for many reasons with little ones, take a first aid course. So no matter what happens, there's bumps, bruises, you know what to do. Um, the other thing is just making sure the pieces of food are an appropriate size for your little one. There are foods that are really common choking hazards. And so things like grapes um, need to be cut up until a child's four. Okay, grapes are a big one. Popcorn, be careful of, is a a choking hazard. And gummies are a a big choking hazard as well because they're very sticky and can be quite hard for a little one to chew. Same thing with cherry tomatoes. I would cut those in half. Anything that's sort of the exact size of a little windpipe needs to be cut up. Um, Hot dogs should be sliced in lengthwise as well, because again, those hot dog pieces are just the size of a little windpipe. So that's a great question in terms of choking and gagging, but just a few tips to help avoid, avoid that coughing, gagging. That's okay. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for explaining kind of, you know, the differences maybe between gagging, coughing, and then choking. And also great tip about the first aid course definitely doesn't seem like um, a bad idea to go to one of those. Yeah. (laughs) Probably multiple uses for, for one of those, given that kids get into all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And hopefully this makes our listeners feel a bit more comfortable too, with some of the coughing and gagging that Mm -hmm. they might um, experience. What resources are available out there for families to learn more about resistant eaters? Yeah. And so I've shared a lot of tips, but if you're sitting, listening to this and being like, oh gosh, there's so many things I should be doing or need to be doing. I want you to take a deep, deep breath and know that again, this is a long game. These are tips to have in your toolbox. Not all of these tips will work for every family, but try them out. Some may work for you and your child. I hope they do. Try one thing at a time. Just like any behaviors or any challenges that we have in our lives, nothing changes overnight. That's okay. Take a slow approach. Try one or two things. See how it goes. So that's one thing. The next thing is don't be afraid to seek help. So chat with your family doctor or a pediatrician to get a referral to a dietitian, a registered dietitian for more support. If you'd like some one-on-one support tailored to your family and your circumstance. Public Health also has some great resources on their website in terms of feeding young kids. So there's lots of great handouts and infographics to check out. Um, And often, now I should say, this was pre-COVID, things have changed a little bit, but sometimes public health will have sessions on feeding kids at the early years centers or healthcare centers. So check out the websites of the community centers in your area um, because there used to be in-person sessions. Some of them may have moved online, but as the pandemic, hopefully, fingers crossed, starts to look better, um, we will be back to some of those in-person free drop-in sessions um, in the community. But there are lots of internet resources as well. And so if you're on Instagram or on social media, there are some great professional accounts that are evidence-based and I think are fantastic that might be helpful to check out, you know, as you're scrolling through. Angela Wallace, who has been a guest, she's a a registered dietitian, has been a guest on this podcast before and used to be a health educator with the Guelph Family Health Study. She has a fantastic Instagram account. Um, Her Instagram handle is Nutrition for Families. She has great resources and has videos for parents to watch around feeding young kids that are um, just launching and 
going to be fantastic. So check that out. Uh, so that's one of our own one of our own uh, experts, I would say, from the Guelph Family Health Study family. There are some other fantastic accounts. One of my favorites is called Feeding Littles. And Feeding Littles is run by a dietitian and occupational therapist duo. And so they have lots of great tips around um, feeding young kids, thinking about those oral motor skills, as well as the dietary aspects um, and how to make it work for young, busy families. And then another one of my favorite Instagram accounts is called Solid Starts. And Solid Starts, again, is run by a, a variety of health professionals, including dietitians, pediatricians, and feeding therapists, um, and has lots of great tips. They also have lots of great tips around that gagging, chewing, swallowing. So if you have concerns or what foods are safe and what foods aren't for different ages in terms of size and how to make it safe in terms of cutting up, um, Solid Starts has some really great tips on that. If you are, you know, perusing the internet and are looking for like an app to help track and work through some of the challenges with picky eating and sort of document what's working and what's not, there's an app called the Child Feeding Guide, and it was developed by uh, feeding experts in the UK and is based on a lot of the evidence I've talked about today um, and parents find really helpful in terms of navigating this and then if you're into reading, I, I could go on for days. There's so many, there's so many supports. I know that when you're busy and you've got young kids, it can be hard, but these are just different options depending on what types of resources you're looking for. I have a favorite book. It's called Appetite for Life, How to Feed Your Child from the Start. And it's written by two feeding experts, again in the UK, Claire Llewellyn and Haley Syred. They have done research um, for many years on young children's eating habits. So this book shares research and practical tips on feeding young kids from day one. So those are those are some some areas. So there's lots out there, um, but those are some evidence based ones because I think the tricky thing is you can Google on the internet what to do with my picky eater, and you will get. 10 million different hits on Google, but not all of those are necessarily very supportive or maybe uh, based on what we know works and what doesn't work. So hopefully I've provided a list of ideas and a variety of, of ways you can engage with um, some helpful supports. Yes, that's excellent. What a great overview of different resources that are available, especially evidence-based ones like you've mentioned. And I think we'll definitely um, add some links maybe to some of those Instagram accounts and resources and books in the podcast description so that our listeners can find them easily. Thank you so much for um, all the information you shared. I really hope that the parent can take comfort and especially in all the resources and things you've shared. It's cool to know parents aren't alone, you know, and this is common. They're not alone. So I really hope they can take comfort in that. Oh, you're welcome. And I should mention there's one other one um, that's a really great resource, particularly if you're looking to engage with your child in with food outside of eating times and really focusing on the sensory aspects of food. And that is Rainbow Plate. It's a website and a resource kit in terms of looking at food, you know, the textures of food, the smells, the tastes, the feels, and engaging with that to lead up to eating. And I think there was an episode with uh, Rainbow Plate maybe last season. So parents are interested in uh, listening to that or missed that episode, they can tap into there. 
Perfect. To close out the podcast, we like to give families three take-home tips. So what are three take-home tips you can share with our listeners about navigating feeding challenges? We've talked about a lot of tips today. And when you, you know, provided me with these questions and we were chatting about the podcast, I was like, gosh, how do I distill all of this down into three tips? And so I'm going to try my best. So I think the first thing is just focusing more on how children are eating eating versus worrying too much about the nitty gritty of what they're eating, you know, how many specific vegetables and and that type of thing. And so let's focus on the meal and snack environment, enjoying each other's company, making sure that the child is comfortable sitting there, talking about our days versus how much the child's eating, talking about our dreams and, and, you know, what was good about our days and what was challenging, because these conversations are so, so valuable as a family in terms of, you know, connecting at the end, you know, if we're thinking about dinner time at the end of the day, but if it's breakfast time that you're sitting down at thinking through the, the challenges upcoming in the day and problem solving together can be so helpful for, for parents and children. And so just focusing more on the how. The next tip would be sitting down with your child as much as possible to eat. And that could be could be anywhere. It could be outside, uh, you know, on a park bench. It could be a picnic at home. It could be at your dinner table. But sitting down as much as possible, it does not have to be something fancy. Uh, and again, less on what and more on how um, you're doing that. But just sit down so you can model that enjoyment around food. Um, your child can see you eating a variety of different foods would be my second tip. And then my, I guess I have four tips, if that's okay. My my third tip is to remember that eating and feeding are learning processes. So as a parent, you're learning to feed your child and learning what works and what doesn't for your child. And your child's learning to eat. They're learning how to chew and swallow. And they're learning about their own preferences and what they like and don't like. And they're also learning what's socially accepted around mealtimes and eating by watching you and the other caregivers in their lives. And so it does take time. And I guess my fourth tip, which is sort of wrapped up into all of this, is that some children may require support and more time to become quote unquote adventurous eaters. And some kids may not be what we may you know, say is a totally adventurous eater, but they do eat a variety of different foods. And that's where we want kids to end up. So if you're feeling like you're really having a lot of challenges along that journey, do seek support and reach out. Fantastic. Thank you so, so much, Dr. Walton, for taking the time to chat with us about feeding challenges and sharing your vast knowledge and research with us on the Healthy Habits, Happy Homes podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. It was so nice to chat with both of you today. I could chat about this for hours. It's um, such such a passion of mine. And I know that it can be so tricky for families. So I hope this podcast has shed some light um, and provided some tips on navigating some of those challenges. You've really provided us with a lot of helpful tips. And, and we really hope that our listeners can take away some of these, you know, try them out and hopefully they work for their families and that they enjoyed this episode. So thank you so much. And to our listeners, we'll see you next time. Take care.